You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right. Good morning, New City. Thank you so much for being here this morning. My name is Caleb. It's my honor and privilege to bring you God's word this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be continuing in our series that we're calling Praying with Paul. We started this series not with Paul, but with Jesus uh, in teaching us about the Lord's Prayer. But over the last few weeks, we've looked at different prayers that the Apostle Paul prays for churches in his letters. And so this morning, we're going to look at his prayer that he prays for the church in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians. If you've been a Christian very long, grown up in church maybe, you're familiar with prayer requests, right? Christians ask each other to pray for us all the time, for all sorts of things. The things we pray for reveal to us our priorities, don't they? We pray for things that are important to us. This is obvious. What should be our priorities as a church? Now think about that question for just a moment. If someone were to ask you right now, pray for New City Church, what would you pray for? What we pray for reveals what's important to us. There's all kinds of different opinions about what makes a successful church, the size of the congregation, right? So, so we might pray, Lord, bring more people. And it's a joy, it's a, it's a pleasure to see this room full the way it is this morning. Maybe we pray for a powerful preacher. Lord, bring us a charismatic, funny, engaging preacher. You're probably not gonna get any of that this morning, but, but we have one. We have, we have a great pastor in, in Nick. Maybe we, we pray for the style or the quality of music, right? Lord, bring us good musicians and a big sound system and studio quality production, right? So you can be worshiped the way that we think you should be worshiped. Maybe we pray for the precise, exact correctness of our doctrinal positions. Lord, help us get these things right. Help us to understand your word, to believe correctly, right? These are all good things to pray for. Sure, they can become bad things, but they're good things to pray for. Now, I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but what I'm trying to say is I wonder if the things we consider to be important for New City Church are the things God considers the most important. Do those things match? What, what do we see in scripture as biblical priorities for the church to be praying for as we pray for one another? Today we're gonna look at what the Apostle Paul considers important for the church in Thessalonica. In fact, Paul actually brags, he boasts about the church in Thessalonica because he saw in them the characteristics of a genuine Christ-centered biblical church. Now today I want us to see what these characteristics are and I want to encourage us to shape our prayers according to them. 
So as you look at that person sitting next to you, maybe you met them for the first time today. Maybe they're a friend you've had for years. What do you pray for them? We're gonna see this morning five things, five ways that we can pray for one another. We can read the prayers that that Paul prays and and that we see in scripture and that's a great thing to do. I encourage us all to read the prayers and to pray these things, but we also wanna develop a prayerful mindset. We wanna understand what God considers to be important and shape our prayers according to those priorities. So, with that in mind, let's stand. Let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, give light to our eyes this morning. Make this passage come alive, not just to our minds to understand it rightly, but that it would penetrate our hearts. It would shape who we are as people and as a church, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So here's the approach I'm taking this morning. I wanna make it very clear. In verses 11 and 12, we have Paul's prayer, okay? I don't think we can really understand why Paul prays what he does unless we understand what he says in verses three through 10. So we're gonna spend most of our time in verses three through 10. So look, look at verse 11, it says, to this end, Now what does this refer to in verse 11? This refers to everything he just said in three through 10, okay? So that's what we're gonna be, that's what's shaping his prayer in verses 11 and 12. So that's what we wanna get into our brains. He says, in light of all of this, here's my prayer. Well, what's all this? We want all of this because we want our prayers to be shaped by whatever those things are, okay? so. We want to want the things Paul wants. We want to think like Paul and have the same view of the church Paul had, and we want our minds to be shaped by these five biblical priorities. There's probably more in this passage. I just picked out five. Number one, a growing faith, okay? 
The first priority we see in these verses is a growing faith. Look in verse three. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. When we think about praying for one another, let's pray that we would have a growing faith. Paul says he's thankful for the Thessalonians' growing faith. And we're gonna see in a few minutes that what he means is that their faith is growing in the midst of persecution. Okay, we're gonna get into the details a little more later, but for now I wanna ask us this, is your faith growing? Or maybe a better question is to ask it like this, is the faith of your fellow brothers and sisters growing? Because that's what Paul's doing. He's looking at the church and he's saying, brothers, you're growing. Sisters, you, your faith is increasing, it is growing. He's encouraging them, he's evaluating the church and he sees the growth of God in them. He's commending the faith of his fellow brothers and sisters. He's looking at the church, he's assessing them and he's commending them. So friends, is the faith of the person sitting next to you a growing faith? Are you concerned with that? What would it look like if it was? Now I wanna be transparent here for a minute and say that over the last several years, I've had seasons where my faith has not seemed to be growing. My faith has been shaken, my faith has been challenged, I've, I've questioned aspects of my faith that I thought were secure. I've doubted God's goodness. I've questioned whether the commitment I made to Christ was genuine when I was 17 years old. I've questioned whether following Jesus was really worth what it was costing me at times. And you know what repeatedly kept my faith from faltering? Ultimately, it's God, right, and his spirit. But in a more earthly sense, it's because my fellow brothers and sisters, the Pauls in my life, continued to point me to Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus is the author and finisher of, of our faith. Who are the Pauls in your life that come to you and say, brother, I see your faith is growing. Are you that Paul in someone's life? Brothers like Kyle McKay and Ben Bilesma and Brett Geist and Pastor Nick and Pastor Keith, these men repeatedly over years have come alongside me and reminded me that following Jesus, while the cost might be great, it might seem great, is always worth it. Because you see, faith is not a feeling, friends. It can't be. Our feelings are so fleeting. I could leave here and I could feel great on the drive home and by the time I park in my garage, I could be, I could be so angry, I'm ready to hit somebody. Our feelings are just so fleeting, we cannot base our faith on our feelings. Faith is a firm conviction that the promises of God are true, that Jesus is Lord over all things and that walking with him is worth the cost. That's faith. A firm conviction that the promises of God are true, that Jesus is Lord over all things, and that walking with him is always worth it. That's a growing faith. It's a faith that costs us. Have you known professing Christians who have walked away from the faith because it started to cost them too much? I have. 
Maybe they don't, they don't, don't wanna be associated with certain aspects of Christianity. They don't wanna be looked down upon. Maybe they don't wanna give financially or of their time or of their resources. But their faith is shown to be no real faith at all when they throw in the towel and they walk away. But friends, a growing faith stays in the game. There will be times of weakness, of faltering, of dryness and doubt and sin and temptation. But church, God will never leave you or forsake you. God's ways are always through the sea. Through the sea. It's hardly ever will he lead you around it. He'll just walk with you through it. Do we pray for this? This is my encouragement this morning. Do we pray for one another in this way? Do you pray that the person sitting next to you would have a growing faith? But second, how will we know if we have a growing faith? We'll have an increasing love for one another. This is the second thing we see. The second priority of prayer. Paul looks at the church and he thanks God that their love for one another is increasing. The second half of verse three, he says, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. One of the highest priorities in any gospel-centered church is that the love for one another is increasing. This makes sense because we see throughout the New Testament that when faith is genuine, when faith is growing, the way we interact with one another will be marked by love, not by hatred, not by conflict or, or division. That doesn't mean there won't be conflict. That's a misconception. But that conflict should not result in division or hatred or bitterness because our growing faith in the promises of God causes us to see one another not as enemies that must be defeated, but family that must be respected and cared for. This is what it means to love one another. The longer you're a part of New City Church, friends, and I hope you're a part of it for years to come, But the more you are, I promise you, the more invested you become in other people's lives, the more opportunity you're gonna have to be hurt. That's just the way it is. That's the way any relationship works. To those of us who are married, does anyone have the ability to hurt you more than your spouse? See, the closer we grow to someone, the more vulnerable we become. It's really easy to talk about loving one another when everything stays surface level, right? We just see each other on Sunday mornings for a couple hours. No one's ever in my home. No one ever sees how I talk to my wife or discipline my kids or spend my time. But when we really get to know one another and our flaws start to show and our tempers start to flare and the heat in our lives is turned on, what is gonna hold us together? If it's not love rooted in the gospel of Jesus, it will not last, friends. A growing faith results in an increasing love for one another. John 13 says, a new command I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. How has Jesus loved us, friends? He says, as I have loved you, you are to love one another. How has Jesus loved us? He left the glories of heaven, 
He took on human flesh, lived and suffered as a man. He was falsely accused, arrested, beaten, mocked, and murdered by his own people. But even more than that, his constant, unbroken fellowship with his father was cut off as he bore the sin of his people on the cross. In that same chapter in John says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Love bears all things, friends, to the end. Love alters not with each passing day, but bears it out even to the edge of doom, Shakespeare says. See, the love of Christ is what drove him to the cross. It's what motivated him to absorb the wrath of God for us so that anyone who turns from sin and places their faith in Christ will be forgiven of sin and made right with the Father. This is the love of Christ for us, friends, who made a way for us to be made right with God. Are you here this morning? and you need an answer for your sin, you know that you have rebelled against God, you know you have broken his law, you know you stand condemned under his wrath. Friends, you don't have to stay there. There's hope this morning. Christ paid the penalty for your sin at the cross. My encouragement to you today is to turn from sin, trust in him, Repent of that sin this morning. Place your faith in Christ and be made right with your Father. And then join us, New City Church or another gospel-believing church. Get on mission with God this morning. Do we pray for this for one another? Do we pray that our love would be increasing? That person sitting next to you, that his love would increase for God's people that sister sitting next to you, that her love for God's people would increase. Not only does Paul prioritize a growing faith and an increasing love, he boasts about their perseverance in the midst of persecution. That's the third thing, perseverance in persecution. We should pray that we would persevere in the midst of persecution and affliction. Look in verse four. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfast, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. The Thessalonian church has remained steadfast in the faith in the midst of persecution. So Paul doesn't go into detail about what kind of persecution they were facing, but this was a very volatile time uh, to be a Christian in the early church. In Acts 17, we're told that Paul and Silas and Timothy were chased out of Thessalonica by Jews for preaching the gospel. There was also widespread persecution of Christians by various Roman authorities during this time period. Paul says he boasts about their faith because of their steadfastness. So true, genuine faith remains even in the midst of suffering. So I just wanna ask one question, and I've asked it already. Do we pray for this? When we or our fellow believers are going through a time of suffering, what is our priority 
in prayer. How often do we pray for the person's faith to be strengthened in the midst of the affliction? Now I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for that affliction to end, but I wonder if maybe our priorities don't always line up with the biblical priorities. What if a growing, steadfast faith is more important to God than our physical comfort? Sickness, poverty, relational conflict, ongoing physical suffering, financial instability, government persecution, public shaming, embarrassment for following Christ, all of these trials, we will face someday if we remain faithful to Christ. That's gonna happen. What if God is just not all that concerned about keeping them from us? What if he's more concerned about the state of our souls as he walks with us through those things? I encourage you, friends, read through the Bible from cover to cover and ask yourself, does it seem like God more often removes his people from hardship or does God place them in hardship so they can learn to trust him as he walks with them through it? What do you see from cover to cover? Now, is that difficult to hear? Yeah, it is. Because, well, there's a lot of reasons, but we really want to be comfortable people, right? I, mean, I know I do. Holy cow. Almost every day I go through my life trying to be as comfortable as I possibly can, right? And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But is that the priority that we see in scripture for our souls? What is it that actually shapes us and causes us to turn away from worldly things to greater faith? It's almost always when the heat is turned up. So how do we develop that kind of mentality? How do we think this way about suffering? How do we actually pray that a brother or sister would be strengthened in the midst of a trial rather than being delivered from that trial? Number four, we must develop a kingdom mindset. A kingdom mindset. Look in verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There's a lot there that we could unpack. So much can be said about the kingdom of God. The Bible uses the phrase in different ways, in different places, but the general idea about the kingdom of God is simply this. The kingdom of God means primarily his rule and his reign. So the kingdom of God is wherever God is exercising his rule and his reign. So the kingdom of God is both a growing present reality 
and a perfected future hope. We see this throughout scripture. He's used both ways. The kingdom of God is now present. It's now and it's growing, but it's not complete. But the kingdom of God is also, will be a perfected future hope, okay? It has already come. It was inaugurated with the first coming of Jesus and the kingdom will finally be completed and realized at the second coming of Jesus. So in the Lord's Prayer, which we looked at a few weeks ago, when Jesus tells us to pray that God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what he's telling us to ask for is that God's rule and reign would expand and grow on the earth as the gospel goes out, people's lives are changed, they submit themselves to the rule and reign of Jesus uh, by obeying his law, by loving Christ with all of their hearts, by loving their neighbor, and through that, the present, current kingdom of God is expanded, it's grown, but we also look forward to the day when that kingdom is complete, friends, at the second coming of Christ. Is this kingdom, the kingdom of God, our priority? Or are you just trying to build your own kingdom? Do we desire to see Champaign-Urbana transformed by the gospel? Do we desire to see all people in this town flourish as God's rule and reign is established in this city, in this state, in this country, and throughout the world? This is what I mean when I say that Paul's priority for the church was a kingdom mindset. Those things are worth suffering for. To see the rule of God established in our society. See, Christians are not simply called to get their fire insurance, pray the prayer of salvation, I'm good with Jesus, now I'm gonna go retreat and do nothing, live my life the way I want, I'm good. We don't escape from the world because it's all gonna burn anyway. That's not the mentality. No, Christians are called to be kingdom builders, kingdom makers. You are called to enter into the locations and vocations of society and be the best you can be in that role because what you are doing is good for the flourishing of all people. You are a kingdom builder, friends, so finish school. Go be a veterinarian. Go be a doctor, or a lawyer, or a school teacher, or accountant, or plumber, or auto mechanic, or maybe even a firefighter. But especially, <laughs> sorry, a mother, or a father. Whatever God, whatever role God gives to you. Because in doing those things with all your might to the glory of God, his kingdom is established and all people are blessed as you take the word of God into those spaces and, and to see how it transforms your work and your heart and those that you work around. Do you understand, are you, are you getting, are you kind of catching what I'm saying here about the kingdom of God? We have to have this kingdom mindset. Friends, the things that you do outside of this building are not secular things that God doesn't care about. You don't do the spiritual stuff for two hours on Sunday morning and then just go do whatever you want for the rest of your life and God doesn't care because that's secular stuff. No, friends. Jesus is Lord of all of life. 
All of Christ for all of life is what we want. He transforms everything. It's kingdom work. There's so much more I want to say, so much more, but I have to move on. Notice what else Paul highlights here. As we work and we strive for his kingdom, we're going to make enemies. This is a very difficult part of this passage. Who are the enemies? Those who are enemies of God's kingdom are enemies of God. And notice the strong language Paul has here. This is not my language. I wouldn't write this if I was writing this. This is the Holy Spirit inspiring the Apostle Paul to write. So what does God say about those who oppose his kingdom? Verse six, since indeed God considers it just to repay those uh, with, with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Friends, these words should not cause us to gloat. They should break our hearts for our neighbors. People who reject the gospel will face a conscious, eternal punishment away from the comforts and blessings of God. They will suffer his wrath for all eternity. This is a hard message Many people who call themselves Christians don't believe this anymore because it does not sound very loving to them. But friends, this is why we dedicate our lives to kingdom building. Because the penalty for rebellion is real and it's eternal. People must hear the gospel and submit their lives to the king in order to escape this punishment. So I ask again, do we pray for this? That we would develop a kingdom mindset that makes us willing to endure the cost of following Christ because our love for our fellow man drives us to do whatever it takes to make the gospel visible in our lives, in our families, in our vocation, in this church, because friends, souls are at stake. If we're gonna believe scripture, eternal punishment, eternal destruction awaits those who reject Jesus. Let's ask God to give us a kingdom mindset. Last thing, the last priority I want us to see is that God's people long for the return of Christ. We long for his return. Verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Friends, one day Christ is gonna return. He's gonna come back. Just, the Bible says, the same way he went up, he ascended into heaven, he's going to return physically, bodily. We might disagree on the details of what that might look like, but all Christians agree he's coming back. And when he comes, he's coming to be glorified and to be marveled at by those who belong to him. 
When that day comes, yes, we will enjoy resurrected bodies. If we are dead, which most of us probably will be by then, he's gonna raise our bodies from the grave. He's gonna give us new bodies, resurrected bodies, and we are going to live on this earth renewed with him as our king. Yes, we will enjoy final freedom from sin and sickness and suffering and death and that's gonna be wonderful and we will experience unending joy and peace in his kingdom um, once and for all established in the earth being renewed but what makes the final kingdom of God worth it all is that Jesus will be there. We will be with him, friends. We will finally see him in all his beauty and power and glory, the lamb who was slain for us, the perfect son of man, the righteous one who heals all of our diseases and who has redeemed our life from the pit and he invites us to the table of our father and we dine with him. The one who eats with us and walks with us, he has never left us or forsaken us. We are finally with him. And those who belong to him will marvel. What do you marvel at, friends? Do you long for this day? When you think about this day, what happens in your soul? What is it that will inflame our hearts with marveling at his appearing? You see, those who marvel at the coming of Jesus, Paul says, are those who have believed the testimony of the apostles. We will marvel at the coming of Jesus because he's rescued us from the wrath of God by sheer sovereign grace. You have done nothing to earn it. Christ gave himself for us He's empowered empowered us to live for his kingdom and now he welcomes us into the kingdom. Revelation 5 says it this way. Why, Why will we marvel at Christ's coming? Revelation 5. And they sang a new song. This is the vision of heaven. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you, Jesus, were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The reason God's people marvel when Jesus comes is because their rescuer is here. We have been rescued from sin and death We have been given a kingdom. This is the glory of our Savior. Do you long for this day to be with him, to see the fullness of his kingdom established and to enjoy his presence forever? So I ask one more time, do we pray for this? Do we pray, come Lord Jesus? Do we pray for one another that we might long for that day more, that we might live with eternal priorities, that we might work and live and strive in this life because no matter what we miss out on here for his glory, we will gain tenfold when our Savior returns. Let's be a church that longs for the return of Christ. Now, 
This brings us to Paul's prayer, which I'm not going to preach on in verses 11 and 12, because I already have. Paul's prayer is just a request that God would continue to do exactly what he's already doing in this church. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to end today by simply praying Paul's prayer for us. It's just a summary of what we've already seen. That we would be moved to a greater faith and an increasing love for one another. That the things we pray for would line up with the priorities we see in scripture and that those who have been rescued from the wrath of God might live each day for his kingdom looking forward to the day when our Savior appears. So, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, to this end, to this end, everything that we have seen today, I pray for New City Church, that our God may make us worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and us in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Friends, we're gonna enter into a time now where we reflect, we remember, and we rehearse. We do this every Sunday. This is how we respond to God's word. First, we're gonna reflect on what we've heard. We're gonna spend some time just in silence. Whatever the Lord is saying to you this morning, whatever passage, whatever you've heard this morning that has stuck with you, whatever he's doing in your heart, spend some, don't, let, don't just push that aside and move on. Spend time reflecting and meditating on what he's saying to you. Then we're gonna remember, we do this by observing the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. We have baskets up here and one in the back with the, the wafer and the juice. And so after a time of reflection, we're just gonna invite you to come forward and observe the Lord's Supper when you're ready. And then we're gonna rehearse we call this rehearsing because what we're gonna do is we're gonna sing. We're gonna honor the Lord through singing because eventually we're gonna do this for all of eternity when we are gathered together with him in his kingdom. And so every time we get together on Sunday morning, this is what we do, we sing. And so we're gonna spend some time singing this morning as well. So as we enter into this time, please join me in a time of reflection, remembrance, and rehearsing.